Welcome to Sermon Extras. This week we have a special episode. Instead of the way that Jerry and I typically meet in his office to discuss recent sermons, we decide to take our show on the road. Well, at least across the parking lot from his office to the main sanctuary. We set up during a Sunday evening service in the main sanctuary to allow members of the church to ask questions about 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. We took questions about the return of Jesus and end times and tried to respond to differing perspectives on those topics. At the beginning of this episode, you'll hear me explaining some of the idea of even what this podcast is about. And then we begin taking questions and having our typical conversation. This episode is going to be a little bit longer because it was recorded in front of a live audience during one of our Sunday evening services. As usual, if you want to hear any of the messages that we talk about in this episode or any of the other messages from Sunday mornings at Gulf Coast Community Church, you can find them on the Gulf Coast Community Church website at gccc.net. So that's what I'll go ahead and begin describing the notion. Um, so thanks for coming out. And my name is Todd, and this guy here is Jerry. Howdy. And we do this. We've started doing this thing about once a month where we get together and discuss his most recent sermons. And I ask him some clarifying questions, and sometimes challenge him a little bit, push him on a few ideas that maybe came uh, as part of his sermon. At least get get something. That, that helps me, that I think will help others. I, I sort of play the role of, because it is my background, guy who became a Christian as a teenager from a Southern Baptist church in, in you know, the Southern United States who grew up in evangelical Protestant in, uh, Protestantism, which is a lot of us who wind up here in our congregation. Uh, not all of us, certainly, but a lot of us. And so I play that cultural Christian guy, the guy who doesn't who maybe doesn't know all the words, doesn't understand all the terms. Of course, I fall in and out of that character from time to time because I do know the words no. and the terms, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I nerd a little bit. Those of you who know me know I can nerd a little bit, but I, I try not to play that only only when I have to to push him on a on a on a question or an issue where he's taken a certain position and I'm not I, the average guy on the street, I don't understand why he reads it that way when every other preacher in America reads it differently, that sort of, that sort of thing. So that's sort of the idea of it, and knowing that we were coming up on passages in 1 Thessalonians that often get treated one way, right? and that he knew he wasn't going to treat the same way as most people, just open it up a little bit, so instead of it being just him and me in his office doing this, just open it up and, and sort of do it in front of you. Additionally, in order to allow you to participate, I've created a Google Slides Q&A, and I'm now making it open, where if you go to this web address on your smartphone, whatever device you may have, then what you can do is you can actually post a question that I will see on my screen here so that you can participate in the conversation sort of indirectly. It gives you an opportunity. Also, you can like slash thumbs up other people's questions because you'll see each other's. So, so if you see their question and you like what they're asking, you thumbs up it, it moves it to the top of the right, pile more. Right. So that's how I intend to moderate this. This is my first time ever doing something like this. So I, I hope... Uh, well, as as often as you want, as we're going along, if you just <laughs> yeah. want to throw me a little love <laughs> yeah, with a thumbs love up, yeah, throw this way always helps in these awkward that, sort of settings. That's, that's right. So yeah, there's some artificiality to it, of course, but we we wanted it to be because I'm basically going to talk to Jerry and sort of pretend like you guys aren't here, and I'm going to talk for you in a sense, when I get these questions, so that's sort of artificial. It's not my intention to reword your question in a way that you didn't mean if I do. It just means I read those English words and I thought they meant something else. It's not... <laughs> that, that happens. <laughs> um, uh, 
So uh, please don't take offense at that. Uh, also, it may mean I don't ask your question, which means it doesn't necessarily get a response. I hope we have fun, learn a few things, or at least understand what choices have been made. I mean, that's sort of the idea of it, is be a little more transparent. Anytime, for those of you who have ever uh, preached or taught any sort of ongoing series or anything, you realize that almost all preaching and teaching is the process of selection. There are certain things that you have to, you choose that are the more meaningful, the more important, and that's what you put on the table on Sunday morning or whatever for everybody. And then there's all sorts of other things that you as the preacher, teacher may find fascinating, may find interesting, may think is, uh, may think is helpful. And then you realize when it comes down to it, uh, that gets cut. That gets cut. Sometimes, on the rare occasion, you cut it and you realize, oh, that should have been left in. <laughs> and so you try to avoid that sort of thing. So this was also born out of that idea, that there are things where as Jerry goes along through his weekly routine, there's stuff that is interesting, meaningful, but only sort of tangentially related. And so it winds up getting cut. So there are times where it gives him another avenue for, for people to... Uh, for him to, I mean, for him to go ahead and and talk about that. And the, the other side of that is, is every now and then you'll hear something on a Sunday morning, and you can tell I'm really passionate about it, but you have no idea why I brought it. Well, that's because I fell in love with it so much that I just couldn't cut it, even though I should have. So that happens on the other side, too. Okay, so I think the polling, uh, the question and answer is open. Is anyone ever, is anyone able to see it yet? Have you been able to connect? Has anyone posted anything? Because I don't see anything yet. Oh, you're working on it. Okay, that's also one of the reasons why I have elaborated and continue to ramble, is to give you a chance as you think about last Sunday's message and then today's message, as you think about... First Thessalonians, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. What are some common takeaways from that? I want to give you a chance to even just ask general questions about it. Maybe it's not something that came directly out of these messages. So I'm going to turn it over to Jerry. If there are any introductory remarks you want to make, we'll go ahead and begin perhaps our, our shtick where it's us. There we go. Um, so 1 Corinthians 4, 13 through 18, which is the text we looked at last Sunday, is commonly used to substantiate. I'm going to use words that I wouldn't necessarily have applied to this, but what people would generally think of, used to substantiate a doctrine uh, of a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, if you're not familiar with those words, then they'll need explanation, but maybe those are just, you came, if you came last Sunday and that's where you've grown up in and that's what your past thought is, you probably left thinking, how did he preach that text and never even talked about those things? And I didn't. Uh, one of the things I f fi find interesting, and, and I should say I found particularly um, stunning to me when I uh, first began to explore afresh some of the uh, biblical passages that were always used to support my, at that time, my, my then uh, stance on eschatology, the teaching about end things. Uh, one of the things I found fascinating is when I went to any one scripture, I could not find many of the key ideas even mentioned, much less supported, in those texts. And, and so I, it, it forced me to rethink the text. as Well, wait, it doesn't actually say that in there. So uh, it, it caused me to begin to rethink those texts. And so this would be one of those passages that is the place that the, you know, some would tell you the word rapture is mentioned, though, of course, the word rapture is not in there. It was written in Greek and, and, and so forth. But there's this idea, regardless, of a catching up and uh, a snatching away, uh, which we talked about in that sermon last week, uh, so of the people of God. Yeah, so... Give me then, what is this thing you're even talking about? What, what is pre-tribulationism? What is rapture? Why are you even mentioning it? That's good. So there's a commonly held um, view of end times, and, and, and you, 
You may have heard of the Left Behind series. How many of you have heard Left Behind series? How many have read the books? How many have seen the movie? Okay, so again, you get a handful. Um, that whole series is based on a particular view of end times that was never even heard of or taught until the 1800s. I mean, it never existed prior to that point. Uh, and it was... Uh, the, well, not if you believe it. If you believe it's biblical, you believe the first was, century apostles yeah, they believed taught it. In the first it century, and then, they, yes. and then it's lost. But we have no evidence that anyone ever taught it, at least we could say. Okay. That's a good point. Because, yes, if you believe it, you think, well, it was lost, and we recovered it, and, 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 and so forth. Um, but but w w as far as we have church fathers, no mention of it, you know, there's just nothing to substantiate it historically. Which, to your point, doesn't prove that it didn't get taught, but it certainly would lead one to, to, to at least require a lot of substantiation before we would, uh, would hold to it. Um, and, and, and that idea is that um, the Bible lays out, well, well, first of all, the whole premise of it is often that, that the, the, the time that God will deal with humanity on the earth is uh, 7,000 years total, 6,000, and then this, this 1,000 year time after Christ's return, and it's all based, of course, then that, that God created Adam 6,000 years ago, roughly, from where we sit today, which in and of itself is preposterous. There's nothing in the Scripture, uh, the Bible doesn't intend to tell us when Adam was created. And we could talk about that and probably be a bit, of our, a bit off track. But the point is that it's based on something from the very beginning that would be questionable. And then it's, it's rooted in this idea that God deals with humanity and dispensation. So he dealt with Israel. Uh, Israel kind of messed up and, and crucified Jesus, so now he's dealing with the church. But then he's going to get the church, quote, out of the way, take them to heaven so they no longer interfere, and then he's going to go back to dealing with Israel uh, for a seven-year period. Uh, and, and there's going to be a temple rebuilt, sacrifices uh, reinstituted, and God dealing like he was still under the old covenant with the people of Israel. And, and uh, of course, this teaching, you know, I, like I said, in the 1800s is when it began to be promoted. It really was not latched onto um, by the church at large until Israel became a nation in, in uh, 1948. And that became, for many people, aha, look what's happening. And then that sort of teaching seemed to fit for them. And, and, and because if you think that there's a sequence of events, the reconstitution of a national Israel becomes an important moment in yes. that sequence. Right. That, so this, this was the doctrine waiting for that kind of thing to come around. And when it did, it's like, boom, now all of a sudden you've got a, an immediate audience. Um, the ba because the basis of it was that God would go back to dealing with Israel as a nation. Um, and, and so it, it's right. That's that more up. the way that I've always heard it is that it's largely based in this fundamental understanding that God isn't done with ethnic national Israel, and so there's a time period still coming when He has to do that. Right. Right. Okay. Well, then, if it's if it's based on those sorts of things, and it each it would take us a very long time to talk about each one of those and mm -hmm. and where it comes from and why perhaps you don't agree with it. Let's hone in then on what is it you're proposing about, say, reading verses 16 and 17 of chapter 4. Right. I'll go ahead and read it in the ESV because it's more inspired than the NIV. You just go right <laughs> ahead. Chapter 4, verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So they're the... What, what do you think he is talking about then? What is the position you're, you're communicating? Right. So, so the common approach is that Jesus comes back the church meets him in the air, and then he does a U-turn and goes to heaven for seven years, and then he comes back again. But you'll notice there's no mention of any seven years here. Uh, it doesn't tell us that Jesus is taking them back to heaven. It simply says that they will be with the Lord forever, so one has to presume where will the Lord be. If we start with the presumption that, well, he's going back to heaven, 
You're talking it, about the the pre-tribulation view. Yes, of the, the pre-tribulation view. So Jesus That's, comes, and then there's a great tribulation that lasts seven years. Right, so he comes, they meet in the air, he takes them away from the earth, because the, the, the concept, and I used to be years ago, 30 years ago, taught this uh, type of thing. Um, well, more than 30 years ago now. This gets to how old I am, but, but it taught, taught this. And the idea was that God would not dare allow his church to suffer the great tribulation. Little did I know that there were plenty of Christians already suffering great tribulation all over the world at that moment. And, and, and so the, it's a very Western and particularly American idea to begin with that God would not allow us to suffer tribulation. So that's what you're disagreeing with. That's what I'm disagreeing with. So what is taking place here is Paul is speaking to them, first of all, uh, about the fact, you know, they've got these believers, their, their loved ones who have died. And he's talking about the return of Jesus, which you see in chapter 1, verse uh, 9 and 10, uh, they tell how you turned from God to, uh, or turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So they're waiting for Jesus. Now, if you're waiting for somebody, that usually means they're coming to you. We've made the assumption they're coming for but a brief moment to take you somewhere, but it doesn't say that. They're waiting for him. And what we read in the, the Gospels, which would be where Paul gathered a lot of this language, is from the teachings of Jesus that were taught as part of the Gospel. Well, Jesus talked about the Son of Man or, or the, 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 the um, king, various different parables, depending on how it's set up, the, the owner of the house, all leaving for a season and coming back, as in to stay. Right. So they would have assumed that Jesus was coming back, as in to stay. This time, the first time he came and he, after a while, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he was raised, and he ascended to heaven. Then he's coming back to stay. So that's the next event they're waiting for. So when they read here in First Thessalonians 4, uh, 16 and 17, the Lord's coming down from heaven. There's going to be a loud command. There's a voice of the archangel. There's the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. So just as when a king would visit their town, they would get to the cemetery first on their way into town. Well, when Jesus is coming, the, the dead in Christ are going to be raised, and then you're going to meet them there. The expectation of any dignitary coming to town was actually for that uh, dignitary to have a, a, a party that would come out. These elite people in town would be called to escort that dignitary in. And so the believers who were alive would meet the believers who had died in the air to escort Jesus the rest of the way in so that they could then begin to celebrate. So m much different than the U-turn, if you will, uh, that, that the dispensational idea gives, it's, it's time for the party to begin. And then, of course, for the fullness of the reign where we reign with him, uh, in that setting fully. So then is it fair to say that the reason why believers are meeting Jesus in the air on his descent is to begin celebration? Is that why, why not just, hey, thanks for coming. We've been waiting for you. Why are we going anywhere in order? Does the Bible communicate that? Why, why meet, meet him in the air? Right. That's, that's good. The, the, the expectation of that time. So the Bible, when it speaks of end times things, it's not giving us a scientific description of exactly what's taking place. And I think when we read these things that way, as a scientific description, we, we read more into them than is, that should be read into them. Uh, it's more of an impressionist painting that's using ideas and images that we can relate to, because all of the Bible and in particular these, um, as we're speaking about this tonight, uh, is really God's accommodation to us. It's like uh, the parent stooping down to the six-month-old and talking baby talk to the baby. And so you use uh, ways and modes of communication that they can understand. So for that time, how would they understand it when, when important people were coming? You would always send out somebody. It would be dishonoring to that dignitary if they were not met on the way in. And if you were chosen to be a part of that escort party, that was a really big honor. And it was a demonstration that you were loyal to that dignitary and that you were on their side. 
And so for the Thessalonian believers, one, it would be expected that if this king is coming, well, of course he would be greeted. That would be um, the assumption. And we see even in the parable of the, the ten virgins that the, the ten virgins go out to meet the bridegroom. So even in that context, to escort the, the bridegroom into the wedding party. Uh, it was a common enough cultural event. And, and as I mentioned last week, even Paul, when he was arriving in Rome, there's a whole party that comes down to greet him some 50 miles away and escort him back to Rome. We see that in Acts chapter 28. And so I think it was their cultural expectation. And yes, it was to begin celebrating because that's where the celebration began. That's where honor began. And, and many times the people going out to greet these dignitaries would go dressed in white because it was, was just more to speak of honor and, and, and to that uh, uh, dignitary. And so the image of believers dressed in white also may be alluding to that element as well. Well, then tell me, so all the believers, I'm just imagining this together, you're, you're encouraging us to view it sort of impressionistically. But here I am. Jesus, uh, Paul seems to be stating pretty clearly, if it's going to comfort these people, that their loved ones aren't going to miss out. There are some parts of the impressionistic painting I have to take pretty seriously, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, it doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. um, so if that's the case then that means there are a lot of people left. If, if we're going to meet our returning king to begin our celebration, uh, that means there are people not participating in that. Correct. Correct. Am I Okay. Right. Uh, who are they and what are they doing? Well, if the dead in Christ rise first, so we know those who believed in Christ who have passed away, they would be included. And then those who are alive and remain, referring to the believing ones in Christ, well, they would be included. So the ones that are left behind, if you will, are in fact unbelievers for that event. Uh, in that particular event, they aren't participating in that event. And of course, uh, those that, that were unbelieving and dead would not participate in that event. They would not be looking forward to the return of this king because they were disobedient subjects. Okay. Um, to await what? What's the... So you, in your messages, you've discouraged event sequencing, but uh, our... It's a legitimate question to say what's happening to everybody else for, for a couple of reasons, it seems to me. One is, if I care about my loved ones, uh, I may be, it may be a motivation point for me uh, to know what's happening if they're not participating in this celebration. One, two, if the Bible talks about it, I want to understand it. Um, doesn't doesn't necessarily make me more holy, but it might be something that motivates me to a different type of living. So, what what what's next for those people? So, we don't have a timeline laid out for what event follows what event, but we know that at when Christ returns, when this King returns, or when this householder returns to use the various parables, that there's a moment of, of, of judgment. We also know that when the bridegroom comes, there's a moment of a, a wedding party, if you will. So there's the reception, uh, the, the, the uh, wedding banquet often referred to. These are events that will follow that. What's the order? I don't know. I, I, and again, because these are impressions, it might be that the judgment takes a nanosecond in human time. It might be that it takes what we would call a thousand years. I don't know. So could, could the judgment occur as we're working our way uh, you know, to this, this celebration? Possibly. What, could it be after that celebration? Certainly. Um, but again, I think what we're talking about is ideas that we can conceive of that will be, in actuality, be so much greater than our imaginations could, could hold. All right. All of this ties together into ideas of, anytime we talk about eschatology or Jesus' return or end of the world or something, you know, thoughts go toward, especially when you're talking about the dead and the living, thoughts go toward... What is what is new heavens and new earth? What what happens to people in like the believing Christians who Paul call, says were asleep? Where are they in the interim? Um, what's this idea of? Does anyone ever go to heaven? Because I haven't really heard you mention heaven yet, 
And that's a pretty common idea that people die and go to heaven or we're going to live in heaven for eternity with Jesus. We sing hymns that seem to communicate that. Uh, how does that all work out? So, I, I didn't mention heaven other than in chapter 1 and verse 10 that we wait for a son from heaven. So that's where Jesus is now. He's ascended at the right hand of God. Um, and, and so he is there. He's coming from there to here. Um, so several things there. One, when, to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we see in the book of Revelation this image of uh, the martyred believers, their souls under the altar, uh, so they're obviously there in that image, right? They're, they're there, but there's this sense in which they're still waiting for things to be completed. Uh, I don't think our intermediate state, as it's often called, the state we die physically between now and the resurrection, is a completed state. It's a wonderful uh, state because we're going to be with Christ, we're going to be very much alive, but we won't have full bodily um, function. We won't be fully human, because to be fully human is to so be an embodied soul uh, uh, together. So people who followed Jesus and died, they are in heaven, you're saying, wherever Jesus is mm -hmm. currently, and they are... They're, they're disembodied souls. Okay. Disembodied souls. Now, I don't know what that's like. Never been one as far as I know. Uh, so I, I can't tell you what that would be like. But when Jesus returns, I believe he's coming to stay. And, and the picture we get in Revelation 21 is of the new heaven coming to the new earth, this renewal. Um, so those are the people, I'm, I'm borrowing your language, so these disembodied souls get, when Jesus comes back, they get what? Well, they will be resurrected, so their, their soul and body together will be one again. Um, and, and, and they will be with them, completed, resurrected humans. The, the rest of us will be translated in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll be together, meet the Lord together in the air to come with him, to escort him in, as it were. So everyone who is either dead as a follower of Jesus or up alive at the time as a follower of Jesus, gets new body, resurrection body. That seems to be the picture that's painted, yes. Okay. So that takes care of intermediate. Do, 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 they, get to, do they get to see what we're doing? Does the Bible tell us? But right like, now, are they watching like, can, us can, now? Can, can those, our, our brothers and sisters who have passed away... Are they watching they me mess it up? Uh, I, you know, that, that's a... I, I, I imagine that they can from time to time. I don't think they're watching us all the time, but I would imagine they can. I think heaven's much closer. Do you think the Bible says that they can? I, I don't think the Bible passage? gives us clear one okay. way or the other. Okay. Well, you do have a great cloud of witnesses, which it does, yeah, and that's good. Hebrews chapter uh, 12, the first couple of verses. I've which, heard that used that way. I wondered how that always meant that when he was talking about people he just listed as faith champions, why that would mean anything to do with people watching me. Right. Just the idea that they are witnesses who are because near witnesses to be means, like clouds. I, I heard this guy teach this class on Revelation recently who said that witnessing meant to testify and not to be a passive observer of things in Greek. I read that. He sounded pretty smart when he said it. Uh, uh, so I would think that he's, being a witness... He's smart something. Yeah, he's smart. Yeah. So I would think that witness there wouldn't really have anything to do with being a passive observer as much as someone whose life testifies to the truth of God and what faith means. And so we should pay attention to that. Right. I heard that somewhere. Um, so that... So that we come back, we, ha uh, we have bodies, people who had passed on previously now have bodies on the air. Still sounds like heaven's now sort of, I don't know, unoccupied, up for rent, like no one's there. Yeah, it might sound that way. Okay. Am I wrong? <laughs> I mean, does well, it still have the father, occupants? The father, it would seem, is still there. Okay. Um, that, 
as the, as the scripture begins in Genesis, you really have a picture of heaven and earth being far more together. God walks with man. We have a separation because of sin. Christ came to restore that brokenness. The veil is torn apart. So the veil of the temple, the temple was a, a representation of heaven in the middle of the earth. The tearing of that veil says now heaven's invading the space of the whole world. And so the, the fullness, when the return of Christ comes, is this remarriage, if you will, this, this, this restoring what was broken and more, because certainly what we are looking forward to is not just like we get to go back to go and start over again. It's much better than what it was. But, but there's this repair of that breach, and so heaven and earth uh, will be brought together. And I think that's the picture we get in Revelation 21 as we look at that. Then if you're going to describe new heaven and new earth, it sounds like that's the way you would do it. Like, mm -hmm. that's what you just did. Yeah, that's, what I, yeah, that's how I would describe that. And you've made the point in the last couple of weeks that somehow that's already started. Like today, that we should already be living as though that's begun. Correct. How, so how, how does that happen? In Christ... We are new creations. We live in that new creation. The promises of Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 65, that speak of a new heaven and a new earth, 66, uh, new heaven and a new earth, um, they're fulfilled in Jesus. When Christ was raised from the dead, the new creation began. And so all who are in him, we are buried with him in baptism, we're raised, we're raised into new creation. We, we come out of that water, out of that tomb with him as part of a new creation. And yet we live in a world that is very much part of the old creation. And, and so what we do now, we live as part of that new creation under that king, and we function under his laws. Now that is, as I said this morning, very dissident in the ways of the world, to the ways of the world but it's submission to Christ. And to live any other way is to be subversive to Christ and to conform to the world. Um, when Christ comes, all those who have lived in obedience to him under his new reign will be rewarded for that activity. For uh, He'll call them to account. And they'll, they'll be, if they were faithful in little, be made faithful over much. What does that look like? I'd only love to know, but I have no idea. Okay, well, I have one question here that I think is really important and burning a hole in, in our list, and it's, which version of my body do I get? Yeah, which version of you? Uh, like, do <laughs> well, some of us do would I get like the... none of the versions <laughs> we've had, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. I was, I was with somebody last night, and they were uh, describing uh, somebody, somebody they knew, this, this uh, other person in their neighborhood who, who uh, is now carrying, a, I think it was a tennis racket, and, you know, so clearly a person who's actively a, a sports enthusiast who I think was in their 60s, and, and the description was, that person is a real stud. And I said, you know, I don't think anyone has ever said that about me. Just never has occurred. Um, so, uh, yeah, what version of my body do I get? It would be, would be the, the, the question. Uh, a, a, a certainly a, a whole and complete one, uh, a healthy one, and probably much better than anything I've ever had. Right. Uh, it, it makes me think of, it's in Isaiah, the, the poem where he talks about in those days, if you only live 100 years, you'll be thought a young man who... Uh, who hasn't done much and that sort of thing. It sounds, it sounds pretty good. And, and that, and that, interestingly, I think that's Isaiah poetically describing, you know, through a, a fog, if you will, what eternal life looks like. And, and it's, just, it's an interesting description. We wouldn't describe it that way, right? Because we would think, well, there's no time age thing, but he, he, he's seeing it that way. Slightly related question that, uh, has got some interest is about the thief on the cross next to Jesus. And when Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, what does that mean? What was Jesus communicating to that guy? Does he go right to heaven with Jesus when he dies? Was there something else? 
Um, I know that I've seen, if you, if you read some books, you'll find people who posit that at, there was a time where people in the Old Testament went, and then Jesus had to, like, rescue them, and all sorts Abraham's of... Abraham's bosom. Abraham's paradise. bosom. Right, yeah. yeah, all those sorts of things that there are... Um, that there's that. So, so did going to paradise mean going directly to heaven, or was there something else going on? Uh, and... So just start there. I know I know that's not exactly related, but I know in people's minds when you talk about either the eternal state, as in after Jesus returns, or death, people have a way of putting all those together because you're talking about uh, how do people exist for a long time. Right, right. Well, I, my first answer to that is I have no idea what that fellow did that day. Um, but paradise, uh, really, it, it starts with, in, in the Bible's description in the book of Genesis, with the, the garden paradise, that, that, that here, uh, uh, Adam and, and Eve are placed in this garden of Eden, garden of delights, and it was referred to often in their, you know, their culture as paradise. And so, what was that? That was that place of restored presence with God. Uh, so, at its minimum... It seems that Jesus is saying to this thief on a cross, who has now in some way turned his allegiance to Jesus, he's now being loyal to Jesus, um, and, and, and where he had been a ridiculer. So now he's being loyal, and, and he's going to be restored in that place of God's presence where they've come back together. Now, as far as physical locations go, um, I think we should ask him when we get there, look up that thief and say, hey, where did you actually go that day? Because I have no idea. Sorry to give you a dodge, but, you know, you got to have one. When you I felt the breeze go past yeah, right, me right as past you dodged yeah. answering that one. It was, it was refreshing. Um, well, then let's talk about after the resurrection then. We've got, we've got believers who, whether passed on beforehand or still alive when Jesus returns, who have all been resurrected, received glorified bodies, whichever version of the body it is, it's going to be really great. And then we've got people who were left behind. I really want to find another way to say that so that yeah, I don't yes, keep saying because that. because of the illusion. Right, yeah. right. But who do not meet the Lord in the air and so stay with him forever. Um. Is there any, does the Bible seem to communicate that that's it for those folks? There's no, shall we say, it's going to sound overly simplistic, but no second chance for those folks? That's it? Like, Yeah, as far as the Bible tells us, there's, that's it. Christ came once, he's coming again, after that, the judgment. Uh, there's no, hey, he's coming again, those of you that weren't quite in on it, you've got this other opportunity I don't see that given anywhere in Scripture, uh, which would lead one to think that maybe um, there's a danger in thinking that there will be these second chances, that it might lull the church into thinking that it's not important for us to communicate about our coming king, or that it might give some unbelievers the idea that, what does it really matter? I saw the movie. I get a second chance. I mean, sure, things are going to be tough, but okay. So I think there could be danger in that idea. Uh, there's nothing of a second chance men mentioned in Scripture. Uh, and so, to, in my mind, to speculate of a second chance is to be doing so outside the boundaries of God's revelation, which we should not go to. Uh, be an unsafe place to tread. Now, I am surprised that nobody's asking questions about Israel. I mean, with all yeah, that's, said. Yeah, that's not really happening. However, yeah. I'm about to lead you down a road here. Um, so you, you've made it clear that you're not very pre-tribulation in your that eschatological would, view. No, that would be correct. So does that make you a post-tribulation? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> because it's a loaded question. Um, so, so on several fronts, my answer to that is yes. But on what's commonly thought of as the answer to that, I would have to say no. So what is commonly thought of? So typically, at least in my experience... When people say, are you pre-mid or post-trib, what they mean is that they assume from the get-go that there is a seven-year future tribulation still coming. That is called the Great Tribulation. And that, therefore, uh, the church 
is going to either not go through that, go through half of that, or go through the entire thing. And so if you say you're post-tribulation, that means you first accept the premise that there's a seven-year future tribulation, which I don't accept. Second, that you believe that the church will go through all of that and then Jesus returns. Um, so in that sense, no, I'm not a post-tribulationist. But I am because I believe the great tribulation that was described in Matthew 24 occurred in 70 AD. And we talked about that in a class uh, a few months ago, back at the beginning of the year. And if it occurred in 70 AD, I'd say that anytime Jesus comes back now would be post that. So that, so that would be my first answer. Secondly, I think uh, the book of Revelation refers to the church age broadly, and even John's gospel in some sense refers to the church age broadly as a, a time of great tribulation or a time of tribulation. Um, and so if it, Jesus is returning at the end of the church age, which would be the end of time, then, of course, I would be post-tribulation in that sense of the word as well. So I am a post-tribulationist, just not in the traditional sense of the word. How's okay. that? Okay. <laughs> uh, one thing that hasn't shown up, but you're, you are by necessity sort of talking around it, is this idea of a thousand-year reign of Jesus that mm -hmm. is pretty common. So when we talk about second chances and... And, and things like that, um, called usually referred to as the millennium. Um, every one of those positions you just stated is typically a, what's called a pre-millennial, is that correct? Pre-post, and if you have a tribulation and a rapture, you're correct. generally you de facto right. a pre-millennial. Right. Okay, so tell me what I just said. What am I even talking about? <laughs> what is... Premillennial. Okay, so uh, Revelation chapter uh, 20 uh, mentions a 1,000-year period, and we'll talk about that. I'm going to go there and read that in just a moment. Um, it's the only place it's mentioned. If we didn't have Revelation 20, and by the way, we do, so I, you, you can't base a doctrine on if we didn't have it, but just for the sake of discussion, if we didn't have Revelation chapter 20, there would be no thought of a 1,000-year future period ahead of us. So we should be at least aware that it's not referred to anywhere else in Scripture. That, that at least should be something that's in our minds. Um, so that if such a grand event that is so substantial in God's redemptive history is going to occur, it might cause us to ponder why did it only get mentioned in one place, and we wouldn't have that idea from anywhere else. And then it's in the book that is the most difficult to understand, the most symbolic, and, and so on and so forth. I, one might wonder why, why that's there. Um, and if we look at 2 Peter, so I want to start in 2 Peter to answer your question, because I, I think 2 Peter gives us quite succinctly the view that the rest of the New Testament paints. Um, and, 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 and so that view... Um, would lead us to a different direction. Verse, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear, uh, disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything uh, done in it will be laid bare. So uh, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? So this is a picture of, of a complete renewal of heaven and earth, even through fire, and this new heaven and new earth that's there. And again, a picture of what is to come. But this language of the Lord returning as a thief in the night, well, that's the same language that all the other verses we have about the, the, the Lord's coming is referring to. This is the second coming of Jesus. And note that what we expect to happen that day is the new heaven and the new earth, what many people often posit as after a thousand years, yet there's no mention of some time gap that goes on there. So when I go to Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to turn there and, and, and just note this, you have um, this description of things. And let's just read through it, and I want to point out a few things as we go. Revelation 20, verse, beginning in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Now, um, 
we had this fellow speaking um, quite smartly about the book of Revelation a few weeks back on Sunday evenings. I think you referred to him earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and he was pointing out the fact that the, uh, w- the, the book of Revelation is not necessarily a chronological uh, type of writing. Right, it's it not goes, sequential. Yeah. It's not sequential. That's what I've heard. So that the, things, the visions might start back at a period in time, and they might repeat various periods of time. And so sure, sure. We wouldn't necessarily uh, assume that chapter 20, verse 1 follows what is read in chapter 19 and verse 21. But many people do assume that. Yes, many people do. In fact, most of the people you would call premillennials assume yes, that. Yes, they would assume that. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, but the, the church throughout its history has not uh, often assumed that or necessarily assumed that. It's been a broad uh, variety of views uh, in the last 2,000 years on that matter. And so it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. Okay, so... Who's the ancient servant? Well, he goes ahead and tells us, but we all know, don't we? If we've read the Bible to this point, we kind of, yeah, we know that character, right? Who is the devil or Satan, right? He showed up in the garden, chapter 3 of Genesis, and he's been there throughout, and bound him for a thousand years. Okay? He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to, to do what? For what purpose? To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Until the thousand years were ended, after that, he must be set free for a short time. So, here you have the devil, who at the time of the coming of Jesus, so we've got to back ourselves up in time to when this was written, the first generation apostles, and what was taking place then. We, we, far too quickly, we read these things from our vantage point in history, and that's where we get off track. We start there instead of starting in, in, in the day when it was written. And so we have to say, what was the big transformation that occurred with the coming of Jesus when it comes to the nations? Well, you may remember when Jesus was on the earth, the people that had demons came to him and and they cried, don't throw us into the, the abyss. They knew their time was coming. Can we go into those pigs? And, and, and Jesus said, sure, go into that herd of swine over there. And what did the pigs do? They ran and jumped off the cliff and into the, the abyss, the sea. A picture of what was about to come for those demons. But, but, but they were in that place. And up to that point, the only nation on earth that had God's revelation was the nation of Israel. I mean, sure, there were a few Gentiles that had gotten in, but they had to come in by way of becoming Israelites. So there was only one nation, politically speaking, ethnically speaking, where God was dealing with humanity and revealing himself. From the time of the ascension of Jesus at the right, to the right hand of the Father and, and the book of Acts beginning, that began to change. First Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and that covered ancient Israel, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the book of Acts is that story of now the nations are coming in to the gospel. So it would not be preposterous to presume since Jesus, right before he was going to the cross in John's gospel, he, he, he was seen, and, and even in Luke's gospel, saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, or now is the time of judgment for the ruler of this world, um, that that time of judgment occurred then, and that now for this very long period of time, we think a thousand years, and we think, yeah, that's a relatively long period of time, but for them, that was ten times ten times ten, and that, that, that's this big number. They didn't have calculators and computers at the time. That was, a, that was a long period of time. And 10 being the number of completion, 3 perfection, 10 to the third power, you've got this perfectly complete long period of time that the nations are no longer bound by the devil. The gospel light can go to the nations of the world and uh, Christ can win souls from those nations and be worshipped in every nation of the world. That sounds like what we believe the church age is all about. The mission of the gospel. And so, if that's the case, maybe there'll be some other things here to consider. Uh, verse 4, I saw thrones and on, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. So, the souls of them, so they haven't been resurrected yet. We always posit this is after the resurrection, but I find that that's interesting there. But they had not worshipped the beast or the image or had not received it. Uh, it's Mark in their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So it sounds like you're saying that if, 
if this is describing the church age, we might encapsulate all that, the, the binding of Satan into an abyss, then the thousand years that's mentioned there is symbolic, and perhaps the thousand years mentioned later here in the part you're about to read is symbolic and not a literal thousand years. Yeah, so I think given that so much in this book of Revelation is symbolic, that it would not be a stretch to at least start with the presumption that that's a strong possibility. Okay. Um, I did see, where did that question go? Uh, we, we haven't hit on yet, we, we've come close, we haven't hit on, and it's at the end of this, where did the people go who didn't get a second chance, didn't, weren't resurrected to meet the Lord in the air, um, are judged, all of that. What, what is the state, according to the Bible, of the person who does not believe in Jesus, who does not receive resurrection, that sort of thing? What is the state of that person? Well, well the most common descriptions I think we find are when he returns, uh, get away from me, I never knew you, that there's this separation where people, these people are now completely removed from his presence. They've rejected him, and they're completely, completely removed. And in other places, it's referred as the outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Gehenna, often translated hell, um, Gehenna was, was at the time uh, a, a metaphorical use of, of the giant trash heap that was always burning. It burned forever and ever. Smoke was always rising. Why? Because it, it never went out. There was so much rubbish there that was burning. It was continual and always burned. Uh, and so that's a picture. They're, they're outside the city. They're outside God's presence. It's a place where all blessing is removed, where there is no peace the opposite of, you know, the presence of God brings shalom, a Hebrew word for peace. It's this idea of being at complete peace in God's paradise, to go back to that word, the, that, that, that place of provision. Well, the opposite of that is to be in a, a, a place of darkness, a place of no peace, a, a place of, of torment. So do you, are, is whatever we are, okay, I could answer, a, I could ask a whole bunch of questions and really go down this. So... If all of the other people got resurrected, and I know that, like, there in Revelation a couple of times, Jesus talks about the resurrection of the unjust to judgment and things like that. So are they getting a resurrection body, too? It would appear they're getting a resurrected body, um, but not for good. Okay, so... So they will, as full human beings, soul-embodied, an embodied soul, if you will, they will experience that separation from God forever. Forever. And you're saying that it's the the images that we have in the New Testament of fire and torture, torment, whatever word you want to use, um, are legitimate, but they're just images, or they're like, this is an actual description of what you think the Bible is communicating? That's, that's good. I... <laughs> If they're actual descriptions, at times they contradict themselves. So it would seem odd that they would be actual descriptions. However, that shouldn't bring comfort to anybody that's thinking they might be going to hell. Uh, that, oh, it's not literally a lake of fire. Yes, but if, if I have to describe it that way, because that's the only, only humanly way possible I know to describe it, it's not a good place to be. Uh, and, and, and so literal or not so literal... Uh, I can only imagine it would be worse than that if there were, uh, if it weren't literal. So I, I, I don't want to uh, to go there. Uh, and and frankly, believe me, you know, I am sympathetic when I hear people say they don't believe that hell exists. I'm like, you know, I wish I could believe that. It's just the Bible doesn't seem to allow me to go there. Um, that that option is not there. There's this idea of punishment is very real. Now our culture doesn't seem to want to accept that at large, but. Certainly, it's, it's there. Uh, I'm sympathetic with those who want to believe in annihilation, but the arguments, again, I don't think are there, uh, and that would get us far askew from our, our purpose tonight. But um, the reality is that the Bible paints a picture of forever tormented separation from the peace of God. 
So I'm going to ask one last question and shut off the uh, the uh, Q&A feature here um, and then let you kind of wrap us up. What what should, thinking about this, you've mentioned this in your sermons, but I, I'll give you an, another minute to sort of freewheel it. How should thinking about these things, uh, Jesus' return, what should that do for me on, tomorrow morning in, in my workplace, um, tonight when I go home to my wife and kids? Uh, what, what should it cause me to think, thinking about Jesus' return, thinking about judgment? Uh, why, let's say I live my full life and I never see that stuff. Why do I care? What, what impact should it have on my choices, my behavior? Well, I think the, the number one exhortation in Scripture, if we were to take all the, the texts regarding end things in the New Testament, or for that matter, I guess we could add further if, if there's some in the Old, but the New Testament's built on those, so we'll, just, we'll take the New Testament. If we were to take them all and say, what's the number one exhortation? Uh, far and away, I think that number one exhortation would be, be ready. Be ready. Uh, and, 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 and there's another one that's close at hand and very related, and, and that is uh, don't get weary in waiting and give up on being ready because it could be a long time in coming. So be ready. At any moment, be ready. So live your life in a state of readiness. Live your life in that constant state of if Christ returned today, he would be pleased with how I'm advancing his kingdom here. And, and so that affects, and we talked about this this morning some, that affects so many things. One, I begin, how, how do we encourage one another? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I, I'm, I'm to encourage people with these words. And, and so uh, I, should, I should begin to think about how I can, and if readiness is the goal, then in what way do I encourage them? Well, I think it's what Hebrews says, encourage one another toward love and uh, good deeds, this sort of why we gather together. So I should encourage you to love your neighbor. I should encourage you to uh, acts of obedience to Jesus that make no sense unless you, of course, have faith. And, and, and so if I have faith, if Jesus is king and he really is ruling and he is, then this is how I live. Now, it makes no sense to the world. That's why it's called faith. But that's what I should be doing Monday morning is living in a constant state of readiness. And so being generous, as I talked about this morning, uh, forgiving my neighbor, uh, doing things where I've been wronged before and I know there's a good chance I'll be wronged again if I do it, makes no sense. And, well, you need to be wise. <laughs> well, yeah, we do need to be wise. <laughs> but isn't faith wisdom? And so I would say that's the first and foremost place for application. I think that drives a lot of application. Of course, it drives us to love. It drives us to all the other commands of the New Testament. Uh, and then, of course, as we talked about last week, uh, an application, if Paul's wanting to bring comfort to those grieving, then we should become students of, of Scripture and humanity so that we might be able to bring comfort to those that are grieving in any given situation. That's good. Uh, thank you, to those of you who submitted and gave likes, uh, appreciate you being willing to do that and lots of good participation. And I didn't see any thumbs up to me, but that's okay. That's all right. My feelings aren't hurt. I'll just, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Jerry, you want to uh, close and pray? You're the professional paid Christian here. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, we do uh, give you thanks for this time, this opportunity. Uh, an unusual context, but one that I trust may serve some folks um, and at least generate and start conversations about some of these things. Most importantly, Lord, help us remember that the goal of any theology, including our eschatology, our end times theology, the goal of that theology is love, not arguments, debates, not... Uh, sitting around and wrangling about timelines and predicting your return, but it is love. So may everything we've said in some way motivate us to love and to advance the gospel for the sake of mankind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you all.
And thank you, Todd, for moderating. Excellent.